Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 164, Lenin's Trigger Man. Last time, we left the future Stalin, who had just gotten married in the summer of 1906, if not out of love, then certainly out of a sense of obligation, to one Ketevan Kato Zvanitsa, who was with child. But because Koba was a wanted man, the marriage was not recorded on his wife's passport, as was required by law. Yet Stalin, even by this time, had earned many enemies, and one of them reported the event to the local gendarmerie, who arrested Kato for housing a revolutionary. At the time, the young woman was four months with child. The wife of Stalin would be incarcerated, the conditions of her imprisonment are not known, for just under two months. But as previously covered, she was not a peasant girl with no connections. When her fate was learned by her sister, Sashiko, she went straight to the top official's wife. This was not a cold call, to use a modern expression. Sashiko and Kato made dresses for the lady and used that connection to get Kato released, but only after a month and a half in jail. And yet the wife of Koba, the revolutionary, was not simply freed, but rather released into the custody of the police chief's wife. The sisters also made dresses for her, proving once again it's who and not what you know. Obviously, Koba could not visit his wife in jail, nor at the police chief's house. He, like all the other revolutionaries, due to Stolipin's persecutions, was constantly on the run. Yet, as everyone gossiped about the strange situation, Koba was able to keep up to date on his young wife's condition. And on March 18, 1907, Kato delivered a boy named Yakov. The name probably came from Yakov Koba Ignashtashvili, Stalin's surrogate father and perhaps KK's one-time lover. Word of the birth eventually reached Koba, who, by all reports, was ecstatic at having a son. Yet he did not dare see or get word to his wife. Besides, Koba's energy, passion, and it must be said, ambition, were still being harnessed for the good of the party, for the people, and against the Mensheviks. And Stalin was currently raising his position among the caucus socialists. Though the Georgian Mensheviks published many, if not most, of the revolutionary publications, Stalin, who had started to see the value of this medium, began to gather unto him what Bolshevik papers there were. First, he became the editor of a Georgian Bolshevik periodical to gain his bona fides, but then went after more and more of them. One by one, many of them came under his control, and the former student found he had a gift in this area. Most of these acquisitions took place before Yakov was born. But around the date of his child's birth, Stalin took the next step by setting up a new periodical called the Baku Proletarian. This venture was under the leadership of Koba, Serin, Spenyarnan, and a few others who were also intellectuals. And though Stalin's star was on the ascent, the socialist movement in general was not. Throughout the country, as we have seen, was the crackdown organized by Russia's new government, led by Stolipin. 
though more of Kobaugh's newspapers and pamphlets were coming out, more and more socialists were killed, deported, or thrown in jail. That year's May Day processional was only a shadow of former marches, with so many people now missing from the streets of the various cities. Also, too, there was a severe decrease in the money collected for those now gone, who were being celebrated with red funerals. Their families would have to contend with less financial support from their red brothers. The world of the Russian socialists was shrinking at a considerable rate. One such lost soul was Georgi Telia, a fellow Georgian. He had little schooling, but when he moved to Tiflis at age 14, he received a real education when assisting in organizing strikes of the railway workers. Probably because of his age and therefore lack of experience, he was soon arrested and jailed. The czarist prison exacerbated his lung problems, which resulted in Georgi getting tuberculosis. The illness would eventually take his life later in 1907, the year of Koba's marriage. At Talia's funeral, Stalin, among others, spoke of the youth's energy and passion to help the people. Koba confessed to the onlookers that comrade Talia was not a scholar, but during his time in Tiflis, he had learned Russian and a love for books, a true worker intelligentsia. And then the future Stalin professed something no one else seemed to know, that the young Talia had written an essay entitled Anarchism and Social Democracy. Sadly, it had been taken by the police during the young man's arrest. Supposedly, this essay spoke of the rise of the Georgian anarchists, which had flourished, albeit briefly, in late 1905 and early 1906, before they all felt the effects of Stolypin's harsh measures. The anarchists were a thorn in the paw of the Tsarist police, as well as the Social Democrats, as they only focused on assassination and destruction. In other words, they revenged many wrongs, but were not working to build something for future generations. They had clashed with the socialists almost as much as with Stolypin's agents. The question was, had this essay really existed? And if it did, did it really matter now? The author was dead, the paper was probably burned or filed away. Yet it mattered greatly, because soon after, Koba began releasing articles under a modified title called Anarchism or Socialism. With these writings, Koba, besides showing off his education, made it clear that he found answers to everything that mattered in Marxism. Stalin wrote, Marxism is not only a theory of socialism, it is a complete worldview, a philosophical system. And using the catechism style that he would become known for, asked, What is materialism? He answered his own question with a story. Imagine a cobbler who has his own modest shop, but then could not withstand the competition from big shops, closed his, and say, hired himself out to the big factory in Tiflis. Obviously, his goal would be to save up enough to reopen his shop again, so one day he could be his own boss again. This is clearly an example of what happened to Beso, Jugashvili's father, 
besides the drinking and violence. But over time, the petite bourgeois cobbler realized he would never accumulate the capital and was in fact now a proletarian. A change in the consciousness of the cobbler, Jugashvili proclaimed, followed a change in his material circumstances. The cobbler, as is everyone else, is a victim of historical forces. But as much as Stalin loved to show off his knowledge and prove his grasp and devotion to Marxism, the man himself, due to his own struggles, could not help but end any thought or argument without returning to the practical. The proletarians worked day and night, but nonetheless remained poor. The capitalists did not work, but nonetheless they got richer. So they too are victims of historical forces. Yet they help mold those forces. Why is this? Because again, Kobal answered his own question, work is seen as nothing more than a commodity with a set value, and the capitalist owned the means of production. Yet Stalin wasn't a defeatist. Marxism would not allow that. The people would win in time, but only after they chose to rise up and to fight. They also had to be willing to make sacrifices, as surely some of them would be lost in the struggle. Kobach continued, History shows us that any successful struggle, or let's be plain about this, war, needs organization. The people needed the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party to lead them, and that party needed a dictatorship of the proletariat. This was pure Stalin, practical, efficient, but also putting himself above the vast majority. The reality was that he and others like him were better educated, and with that knowledge, not only truly understood what was happening to the people and why, but also had the knowledge to combat such historical forces. If this was a sales pitch, and it was, it was a clever one. Your lives will always be miserable until you let us lead you. As the essay started to make an appearance, Koba visited his wife and son secretly, but then made his way to London to take part in the 5th Russian Social Democratic Worker Party's Congress. It would be in session from April 30th to May 19th, 1907. But not only did Stalin almost miss the Congress, he almost ended up in a London jail. Whether because he was not to speak at the Congress, or because he missed his family, or because he was Georgian, Cobalt was deep into his cups at a local pub. Before too long, he got into a fight with a local who was equally deep into his cups. The police were summoned. As a foreigner and a socialist, deep in the heart of a capitalist superpower, Cobalt was bound for a lengthy jail sentence, or deportation back to Stolypin's Russia, and his future there can be easily guessed at. However, in stepped a quick-thinking and, fortunately, English-speaking Bolshevik, one Meyer Wallach, a.k.a. Maxim Litvinov. He smoothed out the ruffles, created by the probably condescending and most certainly inebriated Koba, which allowed him to stay in London, in the East End, with the other delegates. Koba also met Lev Bronstein, a.k.a. Trotsky, 
of the 1905 Petrograd Soviet. Yet the latter stayed away from the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks with equal dread. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. While the fiery Koba was doing everything he could not to enhance the reputation of Georgians, the older and physically smaller Lenin was up to his usual tricks of working behind the scenes. Yet Lenin had, by this time, earned a reputation for making deals he had no intention of keeping. An ugly form of progress, to be sure, but it was, however, effective. And this time, he had a whopper. Lenin proposed to the Georgian Mensheviks that if they did not insert themselves in the general Bolshevik-Menshevik conflict, he would allow them a free hand in the Caucasus. Had Koba heard of this, there may well have been another fight between the two right then and there. But there is no evidence that Jugashvili discovered the offer. Clearly, Lenin was attempting to unlevel the playing field in this Russian party civil war. It's not known if the deal was accepted. However, the ruthless Lenin probably would have not honored it anyways. Still, Stalin managed to make a splash by acting as if he were a formally recognized delegate. This upset the Mensheviks, which caused the leader of that faction, Martov, to ask aloud, Who are these people? Where do they come from? But at this moment, Lenin, probably sensing that the younger Koba could still be of some use to him, made another deal that allowed the Georgian to be recognized as a consultative delegate. When he returned to Baku in May of 1907, Koba wrote of the 5th Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party for the Bolshevik underground newspaper, the Baku Proletarian. And picking back up the fight with the Mensheviks, he warned his brothers and sisters of the dominance of the other faction, which, he had to note, was littered with Jews. The solution to him was simple. It wouldn't hurt for us Bolsheviks to organize a program in the party. Clearly, the idea of brotherhood, expressed in 1905, when all social democrats were feeling the effects of persecution, was a thing of the past. But besides this, 
what would today be a bombshell, then not so much, was that Stalin wrote the article in Russian, not Georgian. It was his first such article in that language, and it is how he would express himself in writing from now on. There was no clear-cut reason given for this, but probably the young man still seeking to go higher up the chain was simply attempting to cast a wider net. After all, the Social Democrats had their largest bases in the northwest of Russia. St. Petersburg, Moscow, Poland, and even Latvia, and they were all European-dominated, which meant so too was his intended audience. His Georgian features and accent were enough of an obstacle for him. Anything he could do to minimize that was all to the good. But there had been more than just infighting, anti-Semitic taunts, and Koba coming back dressed as a European to the Fifth Congress. As the Congress had been dominated by the Mensheviks, they had decided and voted to change the party's tactics. No more would violence be used to try to overthrow the Tsar or get him to see reason. That wasn't going to happen. No, instead, the party would focus on a cultural war. They would build up workers' clubs, universities, and have members stand for the Duma to represent the people. True, the Duma, the only nonviolent avenue open to them just now, was hardly ever allowed to be in session, and anything Nicholas didn't like could be done away with. But literal fighting had accomplished little. The future had to be of a grassroots movement, again, just like the intellectuals had done before Kobas coming of age. So at the Congress, when the vote came for a more peaceful approach, Lenin and 34 other Bolsheviks voted no, but they had lost. Yet Lenin would, like so many other times, simply continue on with how he thought it best to proceed. Teaming up with one Leonid Krasin, an engineer and expert bomb maker, and the fiery Koba, Lenin planned his first large-scale gesture against the party's wishes. The day was June 13, 1907, at the center of Tiflis, during the day. And even though it was only one out of 1,723 robberies that year, the Georgian assault rocked the area to its core. As two mail coaches were bringing cash to the Tiflis branch of the state bank, they were suddenly attacked by gunmen who had and used at least eight bombs. By the time the thieves ran away, they had some 250,000 rubles with them, a staggering sum. They also caused the deaths of five mounted Cossack guards, two bank employees, and two dozen of innocents. Many more were wounded. Kobal had helped plan the attack, but did not partake. His face was too well known for this. Yet many of the attackers were men who had been with him during his fighting at Chiatura. The money was taken directly to Lenin, who was in Tsarist Finland. The bad news was that some of the money had blood on it. The worst news was that much of it had been recorded by its serial numbers before the robbery, which meant it could not be used for some time. But Lenin had achieved something other than gaining funds for future operations. 
He made it hard for the Russian Socialist Democrats to stick to their decision of a peaceful approach to gaining power. Those socialists that hated Lenin and or Koba gave the authorities what information they could, which wasn't much, as the overall leader, Lenin, only spoke to Koba, who, with his already established paranoia, only talked to the men taking part in the crime. Hence, the authorities got little useful information. But the Okranka knew enough of the socialist world to guess that Lenin was in on it. For his part, Lenin quickly figured out that they were on to him, so left Finland to go back to Europe in December of 1907. And it seemed his time to ever set foot in Russia again had passed. More besides, the men Lenin used to fence the stolen currency were quickly apprehended due to the marked bills. This started a more aggressive hunt for the Bolshevik leader, as well as three inter-party investigations. For clearly, Lenin and his cronies could not be allowed to stay within the Social Democratic Party if this was how they were going to conduct themselves. But as Koba had been the layer between the deed-doers and Lenin, nothing concrete could be put on him. Yet a czarist postal clerk gave up information to the Mensheviks about Jugashvili, who was kicked out of the party, at least for a short spell. The details are fuzzy. But either way, the proud Koba now had to deal with having a reputation as a common criminal, a man who gets his hands dirty. And just as Lenin was no longer safe in Russian-controlled Finland, Stalin was no longer safe in Tiflis. He soon took his wife Kato, who had served her time under house arrest, and their son Yakov, and moved to Baku. At the time, in late 1907, Baku was the equivalent of the American Wild West of the 1870s. Power mattered. Laws, not so much. Oil was the main export. Indeed, Russia was serving up half of the world's needs, which meant the area was covered with minimally educated men who worked 12-hour shifts, got paid little, and then had part of that pay reduced even further for the food they ate, which, in short, left many of them aggravated and prone to start fights or to take from others in the name of survival. It didn't help that here the Swedish brothers Nobel and the Rothschilds were making fortune after fortune, either bringing up the oil or shipping it out. Their workers were exposed to many sorts of chemicals with little or no medical facilities. In fact, these 50,000 luckless souls had it much worse than those at Chiatura, and it would be here that Koba recently arrived with his family, would focus on the next part of his career as an agitator and more besides. The capitalist and the czarist officials had to be taught a lesson that a new power was coming to Russia. But even for the workers who would not get in line, they too were equally dealt with. Not that Stalin got his hands dirty with such actions, but he soon led an even larger gang that spread propaganda, organized those who believed in their message, abducted those that could be ransomed, offered protection for those who could afford to pay, and even if they could not, 
stole merchandise from the docks, and when called for, when a pair of loose lips was discovered, probably by Stalin, made those people disappear. The question is, how did the future Stalin go from student to revolutionary, to elitist revolutionary, to an organizer of combat in Chiatura, to armed robbery and murder, to someone who felt disgusted by being labeled a common criminal, to actually becoming a common criminal? The short version of the answer is that Stalin had always been this man, but before this had saw himself as a future leader of the party, a thinker. And he was intelligent. He was well-read. But there was another part of him, one that had no trouble getting his hands dirty, albeit from a planning aspect only, when it was called for. Did he enjoy it? The answer cannot truly be known. The important thing is that Stalin was a Lenin and a soldier, all rolled into one. He could hold his own with anyone in discussing Marxism, but then turn around and plan a killing or kidnapping or violent robbery with the same confidence and energy. He was, in short, what the party needed, or rather, what Lenin needed. Of this time period, Trotsky would later write, on the basis of the Tiflis expropriations, the word used for political terror, Lenin valued Koba as a person capable of going or conducting others to this end. And during the years of reaction, the very terrorist acts, the future Stalin belonged to Lenin, not to those thousands who quit the party, but to those few hundreds who, despite everything, remained loyal to it. In Baku, Koba finally got to be the type of revolutionary he had always wanted to become. Since leaving the Tiflis Seminary School, a man of words and ideas, but also of action. But the lawless area would fight back in its own way. Before the year was out, Koba's wife, Kato, grew sick, and then sicker. She was bleeding from her bowels from typhus or tuberculosis and nothing that they could do would stop the flow of blood. She died in December of 1907. During her funeral, the devastated husband tried to throw himself into his wife's grave, as if to follow her, to apologize, and make up for all the time he had spent away. To one friend, Stalin said, My personal life is damned. But the next moment, he was all but giving Yakov his son, away to Kato's mother and sisters. Koba would not see his child for another 14 years. And yet, his life was about to get worse. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Just months after the death of Kato, Jugashvili, probably due to simply not caring, was found by the authorities 
and thrown in jail. This was March of 1908. Reverting to form, now that he had nothing to do or plan, Koba read, but his time was not without stress. He had to stay wary of those who wanted to hurt him, or worse, as word got out that after he was arrested, more socialist brothers were found in their, until then, unknown hiding holes. Had Koba snitched on his peers to gain favor with the authorities? The answer cannot be known conclusively, but that doesn't matter. Rumors were enough to get a knife stuck into his back. Before 1908 was out, Stalin would be moved to a true hellhole. The open-air prison of Solichektovsk, an old fur trading post hundreds of miles northeast of St. Petersburg. And there, with Stalin, were 500 of the worst criminals Russia had produced. But before anyone could attempt to wring the truth from Koba about his peers' sudden arrests, Mother Nature got to him first. Succumbing to typhus, Koba found himself struggling to keep warm, and then just to survive, something he could not have done on his own. So, he impressed and wooed when Tatiana Skuhova, a fellow prisoner, who tended to him. Soon Stalin pulled back from death, spending many days in bed, reading, of course. Tatiana would later say, when Koba was not reading, he liked to laugh at our weaknesses. This was the real Stalin, sick, possibly being hunted, yet still thinking of himself as superior and looking down on everyone else and mocking their existence. But if the young revolutionary could have spared a moment to look at himself, he could have well laughed at his own predicament. His wife was dead, his son lost to him through his own actions, the glorious days of Batum, the fighting in Chiatura, and then to Fleece, and then in Baku, going to the party congresses of 1905, 06, and 07, his rise in the party, getting ever closer to Lenin, were all gone, and what's more, now seemed all for nothing.